Welcome to a special edition of Demo Crises, the midterm election special. This episode will be a little different from all the others, but we have to assess what just happened in the 2018 midterms and whether concerns about a demo crisis are more urgent than ever or whether they are overblown. I should add, while some of the material in this episode concerns the acute aftermath of the election, much of it will still follow our normal pattern of looking at broad trends and big solutions. So the solution will remain relevant even if you're listening to it in 2019 or 2020, I promise. Especially if you love the Senate and lament its current state. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises. Democracy, demography, and demoralization. So much of this podcast is about real reasons for optimism in in our world, right next to real reasons for pessimism. Tuesday night was no exception. For those who feel that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are doing lasting damage to America and the world, you won one battle in the House, and even that victory was incomplete, next to a clear loss in the Senate. We try on this podcast to be intellectually honest, and not to paint the results in a more or less positive light than they deserve, so we'll delve into it. Another point of this podcast is that between these reasons for optimism and pessimism is that we have a real choice between a good future and a bad future, one that is significantly better or worse than our current existence. And we have a choice to choose only the positive world. Now, many will immediately object, no, 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 you need the bad to appreciate the good. I find this to be a very frustrating and fallacious objection. I don't need to be tortured for years to appreciate freedom. I don't need to starve to appreciate food. Reading about past famines is enough. I don't need the Democratic victory in the House juxtaposed against the Mitch McConnell monstrosity in the Senate. I don't need Donald Trump in the presidency to appreciate what a good president would be like. I've had quite enough of those two. And if they have their way, quite frankly, they'll move us to a dystopia. But that sort of philosophy, which I find very interesting, we'll get to those in a future episode. And it will be fun. But let's stay focused on the midterms. I hope to delight you today, especially when I talk about the Senate. So because of our pattern of looking at the positive and the negative next to each other, let's start with a positive discussion followed by a negative issue and then go back and forth. So the biggest positive yesterday, um, those of us who can imagine a better world should not give up because the bad people want us to. My perspective is not that of a Democrat, but of somebody who's deeply concerned about the future of America and what Trump and McConnell are doing to it. My political hero is a Republican, John McCain. I do not identify with either party, so my perspective is that of, I believe, a moderate. I believe that a mix of policies from both parties will bring the country forward. But currently, Trump and McConnell are existential threats to that, so right now, this analysis comes from the perspective of somebody who wants to check Donald Trump. So we had a big win yesterday, and it is important to celebrate the little victories and the big ones. The Democrats flipped the House. There was a real chance that they wouldn't. They arguably flipped more seats than expected. They picked up suburban seats in many places, such as winning seats from incumbents in Oklahoma City, Staten Island, Northeast Iowa, coastal South Carolina, Kansas's district in Kansas City suburbs, and of course, essentially all of eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey and many in California. Beautifully, it looks like Dana Rohrbacher, who is essentially a Russian agent in Congress, will lose barely. And just like all the pundits said, what happened was that the suburbs rejected Trump and finally put a check on him. Importantly, women reacted to the president and ran all across the country. That was exactly what the House House was intended to do. Madison 
designed the House in this way to check the tyrannical government by making it very reactive to the population. If the president and the Congress were going to be bad to women, it was appropriate that women would stand up in the House and fight back. So we should really celebrate that Madison's genius of checks and balances remains a force to be reckoned with. It is helping us. Also, the courts helped. The Pennsylvania gains are a notable development because they occur after the state Supreme Court threw out the gerrymandered House districts that allowed several new pickups in the Pennsylvania uh, districts bordering New Jersey. However, the victory in the House is a, has a tarnished lining. I assume that's the opposite of a silver lining. It is not a full victory for at least four reasons. First, the Democrats will not have that big of a majority. Second, they have a Nancy Pelosi problem, a big problem. I don't really understand why they why the Republicans hate Pelosi so much. I think that like Hillary Clinton and George Soros, the Republicans have just found someone that their base intrinsically doesn't like for whatever reason, looks, gender, religion, whatever, and has spent 20 years destroying them on Fox News and talk radio. But I will say, as a moderate, last time she was a leader, she offended me in a couple ways. She pushed Obama's partisan health care bill through the House with zero Republican votes. She said, quote, we won, we write the bill. And after it was passed, the 3,000-page monstrosity with many problems, she said, quote, or right before it was passed, she said, now we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. That is not bipartisan. I don't consider that good leadership. And it was health care, the Democrats should remember more than anything else, that caused the Tea Party backlash and exacerbated divisions in our country. It didn't start with her Obamacare, for sure. But she did exacerbate it. She also comes from perhaps the most liberal city in America. Even if she feels she deserves another chance, this is more than about her. I think she has a duty to step down from the leadership. The Republicans will target her mercilessly for the next two years. Maybe she'll win. Maybe she'll fight. And certainly isn't fair. But fairness may not be on the menu. She's an easy target. The Democrats should pick someone the Republicans don't already hate and already use as a galvanizing cry. Third, a lot of the districts the Democrats won were from districts where they barely won. That's a problem because they might, they might reverse very quickly. So it's very important the Democrats don't overreach, right? They only won because the suburbs were so revolted by Donald Trump, you know? Should they, have, should they investigate Russia and tax returns? Of course they should. But they should also work really, really hard on solutions like immigration, inequality, the coming automation of jobs, the national debt, health care, etc. Trump is already fighting back and tried to bully them to choosing either solutions or investigating him. This will not be a fair fight. They should be prepared for that. It's hard to be the challenger. So again, Democrats, you overreached last time you took the House. Don't do it again. And finally, a big problem with this House victory is that so much of the House wasn't competitive. There are 435 House seats, and yet only 60 were competitive. That's crazy. That is the opposite of what the House was supposed to be. Sure, it wasn't as bad as it could have gotten. It wasn't the Zimbabwe, where you can't elect anyone out, but it was certainly uh, much worse than Madison had intended because of gerrymandering and other factors. So that's, that's only the problems with the House victory, which again is a win, but... Let's get to the main negative of yesterday, the Senate, an institution that I love. Mitch McConnell, the majority leader of the Republicans, who has presided over a truly villainous and ruinous reign as majority leader, will actually pick up seats. And the 2020 map doesn't look good for him to lose it either. Only a few Republican seats are really vulnerable then. Same in 2022. 
Now, I will say this is not a reaction show that I wanted to give. I love the Senate. I think it's fascinating. And my hero, Senator McCain, loved the Senate too. They were going to name a building after him. And I despair at what McConnell is doing to it. I knew it was going to be a tough map, but I'm still shocked that Republicans actually picked up seats in Indiana, Florida, North Dakota, Missouri, and they held Bob Corker's seat in Tennessee and Texas. It's really quite sad. I looked at all the polls and I thought the Democrats might squeak it out. But no, the Kavanaugh hearings did exactly what McConnell wanted them to do. They made the Democrats lose their minds, get very angry, and alienate a lot of moderates who were previously disappointed. They all turned out in these rural states and they exacted revenge on every Democrat who voted against him. Donnelly in Indiana, Heitkamp in North Dakota, Claire McCaskill in Missouri. You know, Jeff Flake and Susan Collins really hung their fellow moderates out to dry. They let these guys take the courageous vote against them and they lost anyway. It's a big loss to the country. Furthermore, Ted Cruz was reelected. Everybody hates Ted Cruz. That's, that's a reality. Even fellow Republican Lindsey Graham said, if somebody killed him on the floor of the Senate, nobody would say they saw anything. Even Trump hates him. Secondly, the, the Tennessee seat is a disaster as well. Bob Corker was a moderate guy. Everybody respected him. And he was replaced. He, was pri- he, was, he couldn't have won his primary. So he was replaced by Marsha Blackburn, who's a Trumpy climate change denier, who was one of nine co-sponsors in the House on birther legislation requiring candidates to show their birth certificates. She is truly awful. On the other hand, Claire McCaskill, the the Democratic senator from from Missouri, was one of the most decent bipartisan members of the Senate. That's what happened to the Senate this time. And we'll get to why. But we really, let's take a step back and really talk about what this all means for the Senate. You know, we lost McCaskill and Donnelly, but honestly, they were only elected in 2012 because their, their opponents in 2012 said monstrously stupid things about rape, one of the most emotional issues in the world. That was Todd Akin and Richard Murdoch, for those that don't remember. Todd Akin was the guy who said, um, you know, in, in legitimate rape, the body will shut down an abortion. Uh, that's the only reason Claire McCaskill was able to pull it out in that. And they were also running with Obama helping um, drive turnout. So... Indeed, the Senate today is, is actually a, a demo crisis. It's a full-blown disaster. It's a terrible case of what I will call accidental gerrymandering. Let's look at some numbers. So when the Senate was designed in, in 1787, the, it was supposed to be the, the house for the small states, but really it was supposed to be the upper chamber where wise men or wise women would you know, guide the country towards a better policy. Um, and it was a compromise between large states and small states. So back then, anyone want to guess what the largest state in the union was it was virginia although if you guessed pennsylvania you were um you were almost right they were they were almost the same size and delaware was the smallest so the ratio back then between the population of the largest state and the smallest state was about 10 maybe 12 whereas today the ratio between the largest state and the smallest state california to wyoming is 68 the the ratio of the largest state to the smallest state is 70 the small states are overwhelmingly dominant in the Senate. And that's really a problem. They, they exercise tyranny of the minority. That's why Democrats really can't win because they're, they've become an urban party. And yet the Senate is essentially a rural body. Now imagine, okay, the, the, these, these consequences are not theoretical. Imagine if there's another Supreme Court vacancy in the next two years. Let's say one of the older, let's say Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a problem or, or Clarence Thomas retires. McConnell will push through his nominee and he'll have even less problem than he did this time. And that nominee will probably be worse than Kavanaugh. If the House impeaches Trump, absent overwhelming evidence, the Senate will not vote to convict him. I don't see them coming close to 67 votes. In fact, the Senate is completely broken. McConnell has taken a sledgehammer 
to an institution that was already on the brink. So as I reflected on this tragedy, I started looking for solutions. So remember, why was the Senate created this way? You know, Madison wanted a deliberative body of, uh, and he wanted them elected. He was trying to figure out how to get the wisest people into the Senate. Uh, the House would be the people's house and the Senate would be the, the, wise, the wise chamber. So he thought that getting state legislators to elect their senators would be the elected of the elected and therefore they would be better. Um, he was concerned. He Actually, Madison opposed the idea that all states would get an equal number of senators. Um, uh, there's uh, there's uh, evidence for that. His Virginia plan wanted the Senate to be proportional just like the House. But because – so why why is the Senate designed this way? It actually is an artifact of the Articles of Confederation, which were a disaster, in which each state got one vote. He even says in Federalist 62 he's concerned about equal representation being injurious. Um, that's his quote. Um, so really the only reason we have the Senate designed this way is an artifact of a mistake in 1781. So Madison relented and he, and he allowed um, the, the Senate to be the, the rural body. But it has ceased to be even that. Let's look at the results of this election. So five states yesterday in the Senate were decided by less than 1% of the vote, which means basically we are at the mercy of dangerous direct democracy. I added up some numbers. There were eight of these eight Senate seats combined, Arizona, Montana, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Missouri, Indiana, and North Dakota were decided by a combined 850,000 votes out of 26 million. That's 3%. There could have been a swing in the Senate of eight seats because of 3% of the vote. And you think that's bad. This year, the Democrats actually won the Senate popular vote 45 million to 33 million, yet they lost three seats. Does that sound familiar? That is not at all what this body was intended to be. It was not supposed to be tyranny by the rural party. And yet that's exactly what McConnell is doing. That's exactly his logic in pushing Kavanaugh. He knew he could get rural religious voters to turn out if he divided the country. And it worked and he increased his power but really, really hurt the country. You know, And, and think about this 1% to 2% margin in all these states in Florida, in Montana. It's all about base turnout. That means our Senate is who can rile up their base more. That's awful. That's the opposite of what the Senate was supposed to be. That's disastrous direct democracy. You want proof? Look at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Look at its inability to solve any big challenge. So it's beyond obvious at this point that the Senate is no longer serving the function it was intended to. Remember when John McCain flew back dramatically with brain cancer from Arizona to vote down McConnell's health care bill? He gave an amazing speech. I really recommend everyone watch it. And he said, we are getting nothing done, my friends in the Senate. We're getting nothing done. We need to go back to regular order in which senators deliberate, pass bills in committee in a bipartisan fashion. Of course, McConnell and McCain were nemeses for a long time. And I'll tease that we'll talk about that a lot in our next episode. And of course, it's a real bitter, difficult piece of irony that the only reason Kavanaugh got through was because McCain died in August. I believe, I have no proof for this, but I believe that McCain was trying to hold out in Arizona, um, keeping his Senate seat long enough to deny McConnell one extra vote in the Senate for Kavanaugh. And yet, you know, brain cancer happened and McConnell quietly got the, Demo- got the Republicans to nominate a partisan Republican named John Kyle, who just quietly voted for the, the disastrous nominee of Brett Kavanaugh. It's really, I mean, we, this, this idea that everything's going to be okay, I mean, we, we should abandon that 10 years ago. McConnell's strategy worked better than any of us thought it would, um, and, and we need to stop indulging the, dra- the drug of unfounded optimism. Can you imagine, let's just imagine for a second, imagine that the Democrats had picked up the Senate. Today, all, we'd hear all the optimists saying, oh, see, everything's going to be okay, democracy works, stop being alarmist. What are they saying now? Where are they? 
I have, I, they're quiet. And they're talking about the House. Meanwhile, the Senate, Mitch McConnell just gained power. And there's no longer a filibuster to, to check him. It is time that we wake up. And in our season finale, we'll talk about institutional solutions. And through the rest of the season, we'll talk about some really fun stories that also, also offer some, some great solutions to our big challenges. Today, though, I want to talk about the Senate. So I, I started thinking about solutions to this problem, and I started digging. And let's here my proposal is let's return the Senate to Madison's original ideal. It was supposed to be a deliberative body of statesmen. So how can we do this? So in 2007, University of Virginia professor and famous political commentator Larry Sabato wrote a book called A More Perfect Constitution. His thesis, let me quote him on page 232 of his book. He says... The original constitutional convention wasn't always orderly, and a heated debate forged the compromise hailed by most Americans and welcomed by Washington, Jefferson, and Madison and the other framers. They would have been the first to insist that the constitutional convention of 1787 was not a a once-in-a-human-history's gathering of great minds never to be matched or succeeded. They would have been prominent among those admitting that the first constitution, a welter of temporary compromises suited to the needs of an agricultural nation of just 4 million people gathered almost entirely along a small strip of land hugging the eastern seaboard, could not possibly fulfill the interests of a complex continental country of 300 million that is at the same time the world's leading democracy. He, they knew that our institutions would require future modification and so he proposed so so Larry Sabato proposes some solutions his first idea so he says that it is in fact absurd that we are subject to tyranny the tyranny of the minority so i thought i'll confess i thought it was pretty smart when i looked up the population ratios for uh, today's states and states in 1790 and found the major differences the 70 to 1 ratio but in sabato's book which i opened this morning he published the exact same thing so he's two solutions to this first he proposes giving our 10 biggest states four senators the next 15 states, three senators, and all their states, two senators. You can even give D.C. one senator as a compromise. It'd be an opportunity for some electoral reform, which the country badly needs and which we've had before. His other good idea is to appoint what he calls, appoint what he calls quote, national senators. He wants to put former presidents and vice presidents and give them lifetime seats in the Senate. I'm less enthusiastic about this specific idea because I don't really want to see Spiro Agnew or George W. Bush in the Senate, but I endorse the general concept. These national senators would be the Madisonian ideal, statesmen who have both the knowledge and the temperament to move the country forward rather than the pitiful direct democracy that we see now. In Federalist 62, Madison, describing his rationale for the Senate, puts it pretty bluntly. So he says, a good government implies two things, fidelity to the object of government, which is the happiness of the people, and secondly, a knowledge of the means by which that object can be attained. Some governments are deficient in both of these qualities. Most governments are deficient in the first. I scruple not to assert that in American governments, too little attention has been paid to the last. So he basically is saying our representatives are just not wise enough. They don't know enough. And that was the point of the um, selection by the state legislatures. But of course, that turned out to be um, bad because it became corruption by party bosses in the states that chose their senators, which is why we moved to direct election of senators in 1913 with the 17th Amendment. But it turns out that's basically turned the Senate into another direct democracy disaster, arguably worse, in fact, than the House now. And so um, uh, it's time to change this. And, and I propose – first of all, I like the idea of expanding the Senate. I think we should expand the Senate. Um, I offer two different ways to choose national senators. 
the first every two years. How about all 50 governors? Heck, even the governors of Puerto Rico, Guam, etc., shall have a convention and they nominate 10 national statesmen for a national senatorial post. We'd get people like, let's say, George Schultz or Condoleezza Rice. We would get national statesmen that understand the way these things are supposed to happen and, and would sort of serve as a bridge of, of moderate, wise voices in the Senate compared to what we have now. You know, I think the minutia of exactly how they'd be selected, in other words, should all 50 governors agree? Should there be 10? Should there be 20? Whatever. Um, that can be worked out and probably would be both trial and error and, and sophisticated analysis. But still, the general concept of all the governors, that would fulfill Madison's idea of the elected by the elected. And would almost certainly bring us 30 sort of moderates of good reputation um, or at least 30 compromise candidates representing all slices of America. You might get a Puerto Rican, for example, um, or maybe someone from Guam, uh, maybe some big business, maybe some libertarians, just uh, a good compromise between all the different um, nuances of the states. The other option to p- choose national senators is to follow Germany's model of proportional party voting. So in Germany, they have a lot of parties. They have at least five major parties instead of R2. How do they achieve this? So every Germany is a big country, 80 million people. Whenever they go to the ballot, they they cast two votes, one for their local representative, but the second for a party. In this way, if you're a libertarian, you and you, but you hate the Democrats, you can vote to you vote two things. First, you vote for the Republican in your state, but then you also cast a ballot for your preferred party. Let's say there's six parties, you can vote for a libertarian. Then when then the national party tallies are are uh, released. And let's say the libertarians got 10% of the national vote on that, even though they elected zero senators. That means they're entitled to 10% of the Senate, which in our case, if there's 200 senators now, would be they'd get, what is that, 20 senators? So the libertarians, instead of having only one uh, Rand Paul right now, they could actually have 20. The progressives follow the same logic. They have trouble getting progressives in. The moderate, uh, let's say there's a moderate party in the middle that wants sort of evidence-based solutions. Right now, I don't think we have any senators that are very few. So this allows um, us not to be constrained by our two parties. We'll actually talk about that more in the season finale as well. So that's that's the dream. So how do we move from from here to there? It's, it's, we have to be intellectually honest. It's true that many of these reforms would practically lead to the concept of electing more Democrats today. Um, although I would point out Texas is the second biggest state, so they would get four senators, so it's not completely the case. But it's still true that giving D.C., giving California, Florida, New York more, more Senate seats would, would lead to more Democrats. So I propose a compromise in the spirit of our constitutional convention uh, that might be more palatable to Republicans. I think Democrats have to realize today in, in the wake of the Senate – that their party is terminally ill as it currently stands. I don't think they'll ever win the Senate again under these conditions. You know, Last time they won the Senate was only after George W. Bush had essentially destroyed the country. He had caused the chaos in Iraq, a financial crisis, horrible environmental uh, policies. Um, and only then were the Democrats able to take the Senate and they held it for about um, six years, I think. Um, so I propose that the Democrats commit a final act of martyrdom and run – forever for the next few years strictly on a platform of institutional reform knowing it will bring about the end of their party you know they and but before you know as they're as they're considering that they lost the think but think about their recent history first of all they were founded by andrew jackson who was a disaster secondly they lost to george w bush and donald trump in the electoral college because of their problems in rural america these it these were two disastrous presidencies that hurt democrats tremendously the Democrats cannot organize around anyone. What was their message in this election? I guess they talked about pre-existing conditions. But honestly, is that a solution? No, because pre-existing conditions are driving up the cost of many people's health insurance. So, so I, I think the Democrats should basically admit 
that it's time for their party to end and let's bring about total political reform. Indeed, for those that are thinking of running Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren in 2020, you know, you should really think again. The, Democrat, the Democrats were rejected by rural America in, the, in this election and they will be forever. I mean they elected Donald Trump because they hated Democrats so much. They didn't vote for Republicans so much as they voted against the Democrats. The Democrats really – it's their time. They've, they've had a good almost 200 years and it's time to stop. Um, and you know what? Your strategy isn't working. Look at what happened with Brett Kavanaugh. Now, if you think the Democrats would never act like mavericks and put their country over their party, think again. In the season finale, we'll tell you about a story about how the center-left party of New Zealand, after suffering tyranny of the minority by a populist white right-wing government elected with 40 percent of the vote, did exactly this with a horrible leader. They got rid of a horrible leader by promising electoral reform um, even though it would cost themselves power and it worked. And they, they brought about a system like Germany's. So, yes, it is time for a political realignment in America, both Democrats and Republicans. I really doubt many people are satisfied with their party right now. And it's time. 2020 is a great opportunity. We'll have redistricting. We'll have a census. We'll have a presidential election. And um, we'll talk in the next two episodes. We'll talk about specific cases in American history where we achieved this and exactly the forces they are all playing out today. So I'd like to tell you about a story that I learned about today as I was researching this. Um, that I, that we won't cover later, so I'll do it now. Everybody remember Shays Rebellion from your uh, from your uh, U.S. history class in high school. So Shays Rebellion happened in 1786. So what happened was after the Revolutionary War, we had the Articles of the Confederation, which everybody remembers, remembers was a disaster. Now, do you remember why? Well, it had two reasons. Basically, they, they, they had this equal voting among the states, which was bad, and the national government didn't have the power to do anything. So in Massachusetts, um, the farmers were deeply in debt and revolted against heavy taxes to pay them. They, see, they tried to seize the, the state armory, and, and, and the federal government couldn't do anything to put them down. So... Um, finally, uh, the governor of Massachusetts hired a private militia to go put them down. But the thing is the political violence of the time was so scary to the country that they recognized the need for institutional reform. So what did they do? The next year, we had the second constitutional convention where we abolished the Articles of Confederation and brought in the Constitution. So we didn't even get the Constitution right the first time. So Larry Sabato, remember I mentioned him earlier, his proposal is that we have a new constitutional convention, which is permissible under Article 5 of the Constitution and was nearly called in 1912, last time the Senate was so corrupt, uh, until they finally agreed for a direct election of senators the next year uh, and taking away the, the power of the corrupt party bosses. So that's the end of the Senate. Uh, we're almost done. I want to go back to one more positive and one more negative. So in the positives, um, state initiatives to abolish gerrymandering passed in Michigan, Colorado. They look close in Utah and Missouri. And that's great. That brings the total number of states that outlawed gerrymandering to 12. Ohio came up with their own deal also to eliminate it in the coming decades. Um, that's a great model. And, and the people who did that over the last few years are heroes. They're, they're quiet, anonymous heroes. And we should really be grateful to them because ending gerrymandering is, is crucial. So back to a negative. After all this, Trump will be emboldened. Voters in these rural districts have rewarded his behavior. They voted Republicans into Indiana, Missouri, Montana, North Dakota, etc. We are now a nation completely divided, urban against rural, black against white, blue collar versus white collar, men against women, etc. All he wanted was to protect himself from impeachment and that he achieved. He could care less about the country. If he cared about the country, he would resign or better yet, he never would have run. He's going to divide the country more. And for the next two years, it's going to be more of this. We're going to hear his act every day for the next two years as he attempts to beat us into submission. And unfortunately, quite frankly, he and his allies in the conservative media have monopolized the rural vote. It was so fitting that his last stop on his pre-election tour was in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, 
when Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh joined him on stage. For those of you that don't know, Cape Girardeau in southeast Missouri on the Mississippi River is the birthplace of Rush Limbaugh, who I view as the patron saint of right-wing populist demagoguery awfulness. Uh, he was he was the first actor in this new movement. His radio show debuted in 1988, made a lot of money. Sean Hannity soon followed, and and they really dominate rural rural America's um, information. And and now all these voters are in full blown Fox News fever, and and it shows no signs of breaking. So. It's, it's, you know, we are in a crisis, people. So in conclusion, how do we move forward? You know, I, I think we're actually today more or less where we were the day before Election Day, maybe slightly better off. It is good that there's finally a check on Trump in the House. And they can do a lot of good over the next few years, pursuing tax returns, Russia, solutions, etc. And as we'll discuss in a future episode, it's time for a magical, major political realignment like we've talked about. So Democrats have a choice about how they approach the next few years and how they do it. What they choose will really have a big impact. You know, if they if they govern moderately or or far left, it's going to have ripple effects. And remember, backlashes come and they come hard. Remember the Tea Party Revolution of 2010? Remember Trump, which was a reaction to uh, Democratic overreach? And if you don't believe that, talk talk to some Republicans and they'll they'll read off a litany of legitimate, I think, Democratic overreach complaints. You know, eventually Trump will show that he has no solutions to anything. You know, all this demagoguery is not going to solve the $21 trillion debt or the impending retirement of baby boomers or the trade war when it really starts to hurt or when automation starts getting rid of jobs or when we have a major international crisis with China. But somebody's got to come up with solutions. Somebody's got to stand for solutions. Solutions is, is, is the answer to his demagoguery. There weren't a lot of solutions from Democrats in this elections. Um, also, I'd like to encourage Democrats to heed Ruth Bader Ginsburg's um, admonition, quote, never in anger. We really, we really blew it. I mean he tries to make us angry because he knows it will work. He drives the outrage game. And, and is that fair? No, it's not fair. But we should not expect an existential fight against an amoral man to be fair. Consider it an act of martyrdom to keep your cool. We just have to. And even if some people do and others don't, they'll blow it. So we have to you know, stand up to, to the difficulties um, on the left, and, and that's why I really urge the progressives to really either consider uh, their, their approach. So uh, further guidance for the next couple of years. Um, you know, Trump tweeted today about the great success he has. You know, I like to ignore him uh, because I think he tries to get us to focus on him. And, and this is gaslighting. I mean this is, this is – gaslighting, for those that don't remember, is what abusive partners do. They attempt to destroy their – victim's sense of reality. Um, they say the gaslight is on when it's off and it's causing gas and that sort of thing. And that's what he's doing. We should expect that from him. He is, he follows all the tactics of an abusive husband trying to beat the country into submission. Um, you know, read about the literature. All, all many uh, Abusive partners all behave the same way. Another thing I recommend over the next couple of years is, is taking a Trumpless Tuesday. I like to take Trumpless Tuesday. You've heard the Meatless Monday. It's good for the health. It's detox, etc. Take, take a day off from, from him, although don't take a day off at all from trying to save our country. So I, I've proposed a couple ideas for reforming the House and Senate. Uh, I put up a forum on democracies.com where other people can promose, propose their ideas. I think we can come up with something really good. Um, so in summary, I think we're all exhausted um, from what happened. We had some wins. We had some losses. Uh, this battle isn't over. This, this is a long war of attrition. Um, and and uh, right now, you know, this is what happens when you lose some battles. Uh, so we should all take a break and then work our tails off for 2020. Um, Trump is not going to be impeached before then, not with the way the Senate is right now. 2020 is our only hope to prevent eight years of this monstrosity. But it's a big opportunity. We should coalesce around a 
great moderate with real solutions. I'll say that right now I'm supporting Michael Bloomberg. So tune in next week. We will have some awesome historical comparisons about John McCain and Teddy Roosevelt and how they both fought maverick insurgencies against fossil fuel party bosses from the Ohio River and what lessons they can still teach us today to pull off this maverick crusade. And indeed, many of the episodes for the remainder of the season will talk about solutions for our great challenges. Thanks for tuning in today. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.